You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. It's a beautiful day in this neighbourhood. Would you be my neighbour? Would you? Yes. I'll be your neighbour, Stewie. (laughs) Well, yes, I am Stuart Richards. And with me tonight are my co-hosts, Emma Westwood and Felicity Ford. So would you be my neighbour? Of course, Stewie. Oh. <laughs> I used to be your neighbour, actually. Yeah, well, yeah you, you did used to be. <laughs> You're special, Stewie. Thank you. I love you the way you are. Thank you. <laughs> On tonight's show, we are taking a look at the screen-based thriller Searching, starring John Cho and Deborah Messing. And we're also looking at British psychological thriller Beast. But first... Won't You Be My Neighbour? From Morgan Neville, the Oscar-winning director of 20 Feet from Stardom and Music for Strangers, we have this incredibly heartwarming documentary on Fred Rogers, a children's television host famed for educating American generation after generation about kindness and empathy. Before we had Sesame Street and Australia had Play School, the soft-spoken Fred Rogers revolutionised children's entertainment by taking his audience seriously and not talking down to them. Almost no subject matter was off the table for his shows. Violence in the media, bullying and even death were covered. Mr Rogers used puppets and songs to let each child know that they were special. The film features several iconic moments in his career, such as a special episode addressing a 9-11 and him testifying before Congress on the importance of public television. Extensive archive, archival footage of his show are interspersed with interviews from those that worked with him and knew him well. So, Emma, what were your thoughts? Is this uh, the heartwarming film of the year and did you cry just as much as I did? <laughs> That's very leading. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thoughts. It was not so much thoughts, but as in something, you know, it was it hit, as you said, at the heart. This really hit at the heart. I didn't expect it to quite the way that it did. Mm. In fact, I thought maybe my hay fever was playing up a little bit <laughs> and I was getting a, a, a little more overwrought than I should have been. But um, as part of the Sesame Street generation, uh, which I which I absolutely love, which is interesting because I always think of um, Sesame Street as being groundbreaking, yet it's constructed around this whole idea of a neighbourhood and a very diverse and integrated neighbourhood, um, which appears to be what um, Mr Rogers' neighbourhood is all about. So I'm... I don't know whether they're how the the two interlinked link, but there seems to be some sort of interlinking there. Um, I never never heard of Mr. Rogers. I, I, f- I feel really like I missed out that we didn't get that in Australia. Um, maybe because he was tackling very American specific issues, but then again. Or that he was on public radio over there, so there wasn't as much of the, you know, there wasn't the syndication opportunities. But um, for me, as um, a, a white girl in the suburbs in Australia, living in a New York borough with Hispanic um, inhabitants really spoke to me <laughs> because it was it was just Sesame Street was just all about people so it, and and cooperation <laughs> and things like and sophisticated concepts um, I actually even wrote a piece um, a couple of years ago around the Sesame Street 
Pinball Counts Number 12 song and how it's a sophisticated piece of music that unfortunately I don't think children are delivered as much these days. Um, And Mr Rogers, while showing this simplified, um, well, you know, it's children's television, was presenting very, very sophisticated concepts and wasn't talking down to children and the idea that children can understand that as long as you communicate them in a language or in a way that makes sense to them. Um, And this documentary, I love the way that it did... uh, it, it really fleshed that out as, as a concept. It wasn't so much about him. It was about him, but it wasn't about trying to dredge up scuttlebutt about him mm. or anything like that. It, it presented a kind of 360-degree perspective of how he was received and so forth. But to be totally honest, I don't know whether there was really anything to bring up about him. He was very, um, he was very conservative, strangely... <laughs> conservative middle-class white man who is the apex predator in today's day and age, which is, you know, in some ways, you know, it's kind of sad that anyone can be cast with that because this is a man who just had goodness at his heart. I think we could sa- we can say that confidently, that he had goodness at his, at his heart, even though he was communicating Christian values when it came down to it, and it's even in the title of his, song, his show, it was about love thy neighbour and it wasn't about he was attacked because of entitlement, teaching children that they may have a sense of entitlement uh, or they, that they, they should be entitled to feel special, which is something we attack this generation, current generation about. But it's not so much that. It was more about you're special, everyone's special, let's treat everyone and each other in mm. that way. It's interesting you say, sorry to interrupt there, but no, it's interesting you say about the conservative because I actually thought for the time period he was amazingly progressive in a lot of ways. The fact that he had a lot of um, people of colour on screen, um, it, admittedly like it's later revealed, if you don't like a spoiler, maybe you know, <laughs> um, that he, he kind of, um, when, when Francois Clements... Um, He's spotted at a gay bar where he's sort of like, okay, that can't be that can't be known, and sort of he's then ushered into mm. um, marriage or encouraged to get married, encouraged to get married. Um, but I kind of thought, like, wow, what a kind of he's got this real sense of um, a very clear idea of what is needed and this kind of radical sense of what childhood could be. And I thought that I actually thought there was a real oh, no, sense of I get that. I get yeah, that. Flick. Yeah, I do yeah. get that. It was more that he was on paper a conservative oh, in every exactly. way, as yeah, in yeah, a, yeah. a religious conservative, yeah. a Republican. Mm. He was a Republican. So if you say that, what I loved what I loved about this film was that it showed you can't put labels on anyone. You can't slot anyone into boxes. You could say that he was um, probably the most easily labelled person there could be, yet he wasn't. So you, you say he's radical. Yeah, I agree. What he was presenting on TV was radical. Um, so that was probably one of the really beautiful things I took away from this movie. I'm, unfortunately, I feel like in this day and age we can be a bit too label-orientated. Label we, we do it out of goodness to try and understand and also ex- bring people into the mainstream fold who haven't been able to be in that sphere before but we can do it to our detriment as well because people are people and they come in 
all different colours and shades in every way, not just skin colours and shades, but in, you know, personality colours and shades. I do think that was a slight shortcoming of this film. I should say that I loved it and I was blubbering like a little <laughs> child. I know you were. <laughs> I saw, I've heard. I, I, I saw Flick um, at work after I saw the film and I had to, like, do some, like, breathing exercises to not break down again. Um, we had a little <laughs> hug. <laughs> and I texted my mum <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> Um, but um, that was something that I, that was the one thing I left the film wanting to know more about because he is a Republican and the Reagan years in America were an incredibly conservative time and a very divisive time. And I wanted to know if his political beliefs were challenged. And I don't think that it was explored in any way. Um, but I must say that this is an incredible film. And I did react. I, yeah, I think I agree with you, Emma, where I didn't really react on an intellectual level in any way. It was like a visceral, effective response that really got to me at, at my core. There was one line that stuck out to me it was when um, there was the sort of the montage of Fox News attacking Mr. Rogers about raising an entitled generation of yes. Americans. Mm. And then it cuts to him and he's says no one has to should do anything sensational in order to be loved i know mm. also, oh you'll make me cry yeah. again also the fact that's coming from a male figure i think is yeah. actually quite extraordinary i thought that mm. um the way in which he talks about emotions was mm. pretty radical like i don't even today mm. say that, that you don't see that often it's sort of seen as a female domain and for someone on public television to, mm. you know, regularly appear on the screens and be talking about emotion was really powerful, I thought. Yeah. And that's that touches on his address to um, the Senate hearing. The Senate hearing, about, yeah. Um, Senator Pastore. Yeah. about who, who was the incredible cynic until Fred <laughs> Rogers got up there. And like that, he <laughs> yeah. changes. But that was the bit about, yeah, sort of expressing your emotions and being able to control and manage and engage with your emotions mm. and not to shut them down, even if they're really angry feelings. Mm. It's really important to be able to address them. And that's, yeah, it is quite revolutionary. Yeah. That, mm. that uh, sequence where they show, I think her name was Lady Evelyn or Miss Evelyn yeah, or Lady something. Ele- Lady Evelyn. Evelyn yeah. Who um, was talking to uh, Daniel the Tiger, which is the puppet that Fred Rogers used and which is basically his alter ego, his vulnerability, you know, his self-doubt. And during this documentary they actually had animated sequences which I felt kind of uh, fit the role of dramatic recreations in this sense. Um, They were beautiful animations and they were actually of the tiger, not as a puppet but as a tiger character and it was um, sort of expressing things about Fred. But the the Lady Evelyn sequence specifically that I'm talking about was where um, the Daniel the Tiger talks about, oh, you know, not liking himself and her saying, but I like you the way you are and saying, you oh, know. Oh, the duet. Yes. Oh, that was heartbreaking. That's and where I cried. <laughs> they sang, yeah, and then they sang and the, 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 the pointing out that what was so great about that was that, she said, sang the song about, I, I, you know, you're, I love you the way you are and I like you the way you are or whatever. And the, the, the Daniel character didn't say, OK, 
okay then, I'm happy with myself. He actually sang the self-doubt back at mm, her. So it became this du- duet and the recognition that um, this might take a while and, you know, it might take your whole life and you might never get there. But mm. still just remember that people like you the way you are. It was just such a beautiful mm. message. And the, the fact that he, he realised he wasn't putting, you know, tying the bow on the, the gift and going, that's, yeah. I've, I've solved that problem. There there's, it goes. And there's a, big, there's a big sort of shift away from that, you know, overly positive psychology of like, just be happy because, you know, there's been a lot of research into showing that that, <laughs> that doesn't work. And yes. also, yeah, that, that allowing for those like uncomfortable or angry feelings to coexist, I thought was really beautiful. And especially for it to be demonstrated through a child's to like a children's TV show through a puppet. I just thought it was, yeah, so meaningful. And Amazing. the thing that stood out for me was the way in which this engagement with politics, this engagement with like things that we would associate as not safe for children now. And I was trying to think of a modern day comparison of where is that space now for children? I think uh, I work in a bookstore, so I'd say that a lot of books now are dealing with things to do with um, death and um bullying and um, maybe not um, directly political, um, but, you know, a lot of books like, for instance, Sean Tan's um, recent book, Cicada, is a very um, obvious link to the refugee crisis at the moment. So I think there are there are spaces for that, but I don't see it on TV or film. I mean, film this was directly. He was directly. Uh, well, he used the word assassination. What mm. is assassination? And this was linking to Bobby Kennedy's assassination, which was not long after his show had begun. So there, these were really strong you know, strong concepts to be presented. But understanding that children don't live in their own Mm. world, they live in our world and Mm. that they're hearing this sort of thing and that they need to, they're getting confused. They see everyone else upset and they don't know how to filter those emotions. Mm. So, you know. As as an aside though, I I honestly loved the um, Eddie Murphy's parody. Oh, that was great. (laughs) I was like, I actually thought it was really great that they included it because a big thing that is perhaps not addressed directly at least is the class privilege and um, I thought that was a fantastic way to both deal with that and also through race politics Um, and also I wonder whether this sort of figure of Fred Rogers would just be completely torn to shreds in today's world like I wonder if we've come a more jaded I think this is a this is a sad this is a sad thing you know I've actually spoken to male members of my family who've talked about feeling uncomfortable down the street when children, because children just go, hello, you know, and they've gone, oh, hello, and then seen the mother look at them like, what are you doing? So, And then feeling bad oh, about... Oh, the suspicion. Or, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. about being... Because you look at it, I mean, really, if we all sit back and look at Fred Rogers' presentation, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> but everyone that sort of presents in a children's show vibe mm. has a... <laughs> A creepy edge because we're just looking at it from this cynical and this internet generation where yeah. we're just seeing this, you know, this organised pedophilia and it makes us all so jaded, you know. But he definitely had a, a very unique connection to children. They were just like, I love you when they saw him. And he wasn't dressed as a clown. Yeah. He wasn't dressed as, he was just a man. And we the have archival to- footage of him performing for children and just the close-up shots of oh, their eyes him. lighting up. Hang on, at this point we definitely have to address the fact that the man who looks exactly like Joaquin Phoenix from uh, last week's <laughs> film, You Were Never Really Here. <laughs> Because 
That was so ridiculous. Like, he even talks like Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't remember his yeah. name. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. I don't even remember who it was as well. Cause but I... that just was a great intertextual moment of, like, yeah, that concern around the safety of children. I was like, wow, Joaquin cares about that as well. <laughs> we know that. He'll go around with a hammer. But that was, <laughs> but that was one thing that sort of did frustrate me a lot is that we get a lot of different interview subjects and their names are sort of sort of shown at the bottom of the screen at the start. And then they stopped. And then they stopped. And I forgot who was the oh, brothers. I was the same. Who was the colleagues. And yeah. I mean, they were all kind of saying the same thing. But I wanted to know who whose sons were and who were work colleagues. And yeah, that I was the, the only thing that confused me. Yeah. Mm. That was just a, a flaw in the filmmaking. I think otherwise, though, that it was really beautifully constructed. Mm. The way yeah, that they slick. had the moment, and I think we've spoken, when we talked about Three Identical Strangers as well, we were talking about a moment where the camera was left to linger and the way that it, it it's says something in the, the in the way the film has been edited mm-hmm. this um, had a moment where they had to reflect for a minute on someone oh. that had affected them in yeah. their lives it destroyed and th- me yeah and see but that <laughs> destroyed me. yeah that same once I realized they were mm. genuine about it because I thought oh has this is this just a camera that's just been left going? But then they all addressed it and said, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about my mum or, you That's know. why I texted my mum. Oh. <laughs> I had the, um, after watching it, I was like, I need to call my dad. <laughs> um, but it was, it was yeah, I, I mean, I think the director whose name I've forgotten, Morgan Neville, yeah. um, he he did um, Best of Fiends. Uh, is that right? Have I got the name? Best Enemy, sorry, my mistake. Best of Enemies. The Best Buckley of Enemies, yeah. Thing. And I yep, thought that yep. that had the same feel where he has um, just faith in the characters speaking for themselves and just allowing for those moments to sit and not over overly getting involved. There was or, that, yeah. that great moment. Remember when he had... Uh, one of the interviewees was discussing how um, how Mr Rogers appreciated silence, especially in a world where the children's entertainment was becoming faster and faster and more and more cuts, and that he would stop and pause and allow the moments of silence and allow the children to have a moment to think. Because children don't often respond straight away. They need to think. And then he did that to yeah. the interview subject, like to create them. He, and he went, I know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film. I actually didn't know anything about Fred Rogers. I think I had a, like a vague sense through the parodies actually. Like I think the parodies were kind of familiar where I'd see this character pop up in, you know, Saturday Night Live skits and I'd be like, oh, it's kind of familiar. And it went till yeah. 2001. Yeah. What a gr- From just, 1968. Yeah. I find this absolutely gobsmacking. I mean, this is a new revelation to me. Yeah. I, like I said, I feel robbed. I wanted to be a kid in this You can world. go back. <laughs> we oh, had, yeah. we had Look play at me. school, though. Play school was pretty special growing up. Yeah. Sesame Street was my jam. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Obsessed. Noni Hazelhurst was my second mum growing up. <laughs> yeah. This was, I think, this film, um, as a documentary, and I, I was saying to Stewie before this, I found, I find that, you know, there are lots of good documentaries and you can really enjoy them. This one just has, you know, catapulted itself into my top ten of the year oh, wow. of, of all the films this Same. year. Yeah, yeah, it's mm. a really slick documentary. It could easily have been very, just kind of boring. And it's like, you know, this is Mr. Rogers. This is when he was born. This is his career. But it was really interesting in terms of how it sort of it was thematically organized, the use of the animations. 
the sort of the the direct address to the screen, particularly at that moment when they're thinking about someone that was important to them. They're looking at you, mm. right at you. There was that one guy, I can't, again, because the names weren't included, I can't remember his name, but he was from the Fred Rogers um, Centre. Oh, and I yes. found him a he little like bit too slick. And then at that bit where he does the one minute. Yeah. yeah but, but then when he did the one minute, it was like the most moving one because I was like, broke through yeah. <laughs> the facade. Anyway, I, I sort of warmed yeah. up to him. And there was one, like, another thing that griped me a little bit, and this is not necessarily the film itself, but maybe a Mr. Rogers thing, was when there's a montage of other TV shows and he just refers to them all as being a negative influence yeah. on children. I thought that was a little bit simplistic. Yeah, I, I thought that as well when they yeah. kind of were saying that, um, yeah, it was it was it was very. Oh, he wasn't. The good thing was he wasn't presented without his flaws. Yeah, like even even um, the the guy who played the cop in oh, the Francois and, yeah Francois yeah. Clemens who said uh, you know he was really spoke very lovingly, but he kind of suggested that he'd went down the track of getting married going for a, a heterosexual marriage and the disaster that was and how his life didn't pan out the way it should have because he kind of wanted to keep Fred happy. Mm. Um, uh, even though I don't think that he was, uh, Fred Rogers was homophobic, it was the fact that he was trying to protect the show at that time. And, and I think, was, yeah, yeah, wasn't it kind of also tied in the fact with they're already taking huge risks with having like a person of colour in a ro- main role and then for it well, to also a, be a reveal. Yeah, his putting his feet in the same, you know, the water. same pool, the that same water so powerful, as him. Wasn't yeah, it, it was very powerful. I think yeah. he thought we have to take this a step at a time. And that's yeah. one of the key images used to sell the film as well. Yeah. Them both with um, their feet in the water together. Mm. Yeah. All right. Won't You Be My Neighbour is in release now and it is exclusive to Cinema Nova. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Next up for discussion tonight is Beast, the feature directorial debut from Michael Pierce. Moll, played by Jesse Buckley, is a troubled young woman living in the isolated community on Jersey Island and finds herself torn between the charge of her oppressive family, namely her mother, Hilary, played by Geraldine James, and her older police detective brother, Cliff, played by Tristan Gravel. Uh, and the allure of her mysterious outsider, suspected of a serious a, a series of brutal murders, that of Pascal, played by Johnny Flynn. Potentially mundane events are made suspenseful as we are given hints to the inner machinations of Mole's mind as she is pulled between both opposing forces, her boyfriend and her family, and more importantly, her fascination with and disgust at these violent, sadistic crimes. So Flick, mm. let's kick it off with you. I did see this with you, but we didn't talk about it at all. We were so well behaved, weren't we? (laughs) We both looked at each other as soon as the credits rolled up and like, oh, we can't say anything. (laughs) Um, We were very, yeah, we were very good. I, um, I, so yeah, we saw it last night and I have just been thinking about it all day. Um, It stuck with me longer than I thought it would. Um, Something about the way in which the, I think, so this, she's Moll is this character caught between these sort of two worlds where you have this kind of like rough outsider and you can completely understand why like she falls for him. I think they the casting of Johnny Flynn, who's this like folk singer, is perfect. Um, he's he's very got handsome. this like he's very handsome, but in a Charlie very like Hunnam. rugged. 
Isn't he like Charlie Hunnam? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what I thought straight away. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And he and it's just very believable. Like I I got that she was this girl who'd been teased at high school. You got this sense of like she's an outsider in, within her own family. And then this sort of outsider comes along, he saves her from um sexual harassment and possibly, you know, potential abuse. And I just, I think the thing that stood out for me the most was that neither of those worlds that she's torn between, or not really torn between because she kind of, she she ends up sort of leaving one, is is sort of hospitable to her in a lot of ways. Like they both have their own sense of violence. One is internalised and through control and through distrust and um, kind of said more through words. And the other is... Um, bursts out in these kind of like violent attacks and, and sometimes like in also passionate attacks. Um, uh, and the sex scenes, um, I was trying to work out why I was R-rated <laughs> and I actually Googled it beforehand being like, what exactly? Because I, I was going to, uh, before I knew Stu was going to join me, I thought I was going to see it by myself and I'm a scaredy cat and I was like, well, how scary is this going to be? Um, so I did a quick, <laughs> quick scan through and um, one of the, I mean, trusty IMDB, I think it was, said something like, oh, she wears low-cut tops. She does not wear low-cut tops. No. <laughs> she doesn't. She wears like the... little 1950s yeah. frocks. Yeah. So <laughs> the R rating is surprising and I thought about it today and I think it's got to do with the nature of the violence. It is very sexualised violence. I think um, maybe trigger warning for anyone who is going to go see it that there is uh, a reference to sexual harassment, sexual abuse. Um, but I, I don't know. It's really stuck with me. I really... I actually sent my friend a text before going into this being like, because he was going to join me and um, I was like, oh, don't worry, I think it will suck. And I stand corrected. I really, uh, I was just really affected by it. I thought it was beautifully shot. I loved the actors. I thought they were so amazing. Oh, I've forgotten her name, the mum. Geraldine James. Geraldine James. She's very Redgrave-like, isn't she? I thought it was Redgrave for a second. Yeah, I did initially. Um, She was amazing. That um, line she has when she's like, he's ruining the grass. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I I loved, I thought that, I mean, it's it's a fantastic film for a lot of reasons. Like I thought that the title itself and calling it kind of a horror, you're just like, oh, and they've referred to it as like a, um, what was the, there's something about a line about it being a a mixed up fairy tale. So you have this idea of like something supernatural and there's this sense of wildness at the core that continually gets repeated back. So it has such a clear idea and appears as I think this is, so this is his directorial debut for a feature length and you get this sense that he had a very clear idea of that theme and returning continually to that theme. And... Um, yeah, it's it's kind of felt in such different ways. Like it's felt in the class tension. It's felt in uh, gender politics. Um, and I thought they did a wonderful job of just pulling apart all those tensions. I don't know. Mm. I, I, I think this is on my list of favourite films for this year. Yeah, I, yeah. that title, Beast, I think is, is so interesting because... Obviously, when you when the film starts, you know, he is the beast, Beauty and the Beast. But as the film goes on, I think it's about her exploring her own beast, mm. like qualities. Yeah, Emma? Mm, yeah, I agree with you. I think what you're kind of teasing at there was what really sat with me. The fairy tale quality did resonate in this very strongly and its title, Beast, because I kind of thought about that. Why is this, why is this called Beast? And it is all about that 
animalistic urges. Um, it reminded me, strangely, this is going to sound very strange, but it reminded me of Raw, the Julia DeCorno oh, film. Oh, no, I can see that. Because, yeah, it was about yeah. her, um, even though she was slightly older than the character, um, the, the lead character in Raw, it, she was still making a decision about which way she was going to go because she has that beast in her that she's attacked someone in the past and she's trying to reconcile with that and decide the person she is and you can see she hasn't really settled on that um, and the, the idea is that Pascal could draw her in one direction but her family were, were certainly not doing anything to um, help her. Mm. Um, the family dynamic was very strange Initially, I didn't really understand. I didn't feel the con- the restriction from it. I, it was just kind of vocalised by her or shown by her. I didn't necessarily see it, but it did. It did evolve more across the film. I felt, but the fairy tale aspect for me was very much in her dynamic with the family. It felt like she was, um, for example, Cinderella mm. in that family. Mm. She was, but. She was the, well, Cinderella's the stepsister, whereas this is, she's the blood relative, but still she is treated as a stepsister and not someone who is, you know, a part of, of them. Or and, and it was interesting that they kept on putting responsibilities on her, that the idea that she was commi- um, caring, she had to care for a demented father, yet they didn't trust her, mm. you know, and that she had to come back and care for a niece or she went out and didn't care for a niece, yet they didn't. They didn't trust her, which was really quite bizarre. Yeah. Sorry, so I um so I had just seen Won't You Be My Neighbour before seeing this. So it was very Stewie's much Stewie's very strange day <laughs> yesterday. What a day. So it was very much in a Fred Rogers mindset when the film started. And <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> but when, but Let's just let it sit. <laughs> go with me here. Uh, that the opening few scenes with her interaction with her family. For me, I immediately read that as no one has her back in her family and she's something that they have to manage and and deal mm. with and and she doesn't like being managed in that way. So no one that none of them really see her. Also mm. it gave context and that that very yeah, that thing of not being seen gives context and I think a very real um, stretching beyond the film of um, people who are in potentially abusive relationships, who mm. the reasons why they might be drawn to those characters and also how they become so isolated from their own family. And I thought that that was just like so beautifully brought through yeah. well, in she, that finan- family Yeah, dynamic. she didn't, she, um, she couldn't feel, she couldn't be herself. So like in the way that, you know, you'll have people cutting themselves or whatever, we, we do have her cut herself in the, you know, at the start of the the films with a broken glass, you know, and wanting to feel. And it's only through meeting this Pascal character that she could actually feel. I think the the nighttime shots are beautiful Mm. when they're in the woods at night. It's so stunning. The whole, th- like, honestly, I think the whole film is very beautifully shot. Like, there were scenes from that where um, there's that fantastic bit where um, any of the cliff ones, actually, there's every- just, it's very pretty. It's Jersey's very, very, pretty. very pretty. I, n- yeah. I do know of people who've holidayed there. Oh, really? 
Really? Yeah, yeah. And it is very, very affluent. So that mm. was interesting, the contrast in it as well, because Pascal was a Jersey native. You mm. know, he was saying, I'm born and bred here. My family goes right back. And in some ways, Mole's family were probably the infiltrators, but they were more of the status quo you know, the wealthy status quo of of Jersey. So, you know, that whole, yeah, fairy tale aspect and the playing on the guy from the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, at times it could have been from like the wild one. He could have been Marlon Brando, like he's got his leather jacket on and she's in this little, little like 50s house dress yeah. and her yeah. little slip-on shoes, you know. It really... I felt it really played on sort of traditions of storytelling. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the course I'm teaching this semester, we watched Terence Malick's Badlands. Oh, oh, I love that film. And yeah, <laughs> Stewie, I got I got great. a Badlands vibe from this. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. She's even a redhead like uh, Sissy yeah. Spacek. Yeah, and actually, uh, the actress uh, Jessie Buckley. Yeah, she. Um, a lot of her earlier roles have been in like these real period pieces. So it, it, I think she's got that face for Isn't she that a, a musician as well. I think she's the same oh, really? as um, Johnny Flynn. Yeah. yeah, I think they're both musicians, which is interesting. I don't know whether that's been a predominant thing. She's probably acted more than him, but um, that the fact that they are both musicians and came came into this film, mm. they it is very well cast. Mm. Um, really and well for a cast. debut film, it's it's tackling really difficult nuanced material I felt yeah, for a, I th- a debut. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of um, lot to explore with this film. Yeah. So Beast is in limited release now. Three triple Finally tonight, we look at screen-based thriller Searching, directed by Anish Chaganti. Noted for being shot entirely from the point of view of smartphones and computer screens, the film follows a father, David Kim, played by John Cho, who is desperately trying to find his missing 16-year-old daughter, Margot Michelle La. With the help of police detective Rosemary Vick, played by Deborah Messing. The audience experienced the story through Mac computer screens, television reports, security footage, FaceTime chats, message threads and news reports. The screen is always full of information, i.e. clues, which only adds to the film's suspense. So, Emma, thoughts? Mm, this is kind of a continuation of the found footage subgenre, don't it is, you think? It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it even has, sort of has elements of that in there in terms of um, hidden cameras because I was wondering at certain key stages... I did actually get immersed in it. I will say that it did drag me along with the with the the media as such. Uh, I, there were some moments though when I thought, okay, how are they going to do this? And then they did things like a a news clip on a, a desktop, or uh, mm. you know, or sort of a surveillance spy camera or something you, like yeah. that. Was there moments know? where you're just waiting for the next screen to come up though? I was yeah. sort of like, how are they going to do that? There was. I was. I did. I did get in. I did get a seamless aspect for it. You know, I think it's it's pretty hard not to do it and not have moments where you're going to think, all right, that are slightly clunky, which are just a little bit forced. But um, but the world did work for me. I I like the way that it it had sort of like a preface to it, a filmic preface that was like a story before the story. Mm. It reminded me of something like Up, you know, the um 
the the it's animated not, yeah. film up, which had this whole story at the start. What are you doing? Stewie's shaking his head. No, that I mean, <laughs> thinking of like films that make us cry. That oh, that, that made you opening cry. segment. <laughs> I know. Was, and I was thinking of Up. Yes, yeah, that opening. Up Hang is, on. I thought you were shaking Wait, your head at I me. I think this like, is an unfair comparison. <laughs> up is like Up is an amazing cinematic masterpiece, and this film is not. <laughs> Really well. <laughs> it isn't an amazing cinematic masterpiece, but it is following a very similar structure. Okay. Let's just say right. in that. Yeah. All right. And then, <laughs> but that opening is very well done. It is very well done. I'm rolling I, my I eyes liked, on radio. Liked, <laughs> she goes, I roll. That's Felicity. I roll. Um, yeah, it's, I thought that that bit, that start, added to it so much because it added an extra dimension when you were going through the kidnap, disappearance, abduction, you don't know what it is. He's questioning his relationship with his daughter um, and it seems incongruent with what's gone on beforehand. So as an audience, you can, you've got evidence. It's a good backgrounder, right, so to give you something to work with and make you question what's going on. As a mystery, I think it's very well done. There are so many, the screen is always full of information. There are a lot of clues thrown at you. And then when there are twists later on, you're like, oh, that was that. And then that was that, was that, that yeah. was that. Like I've, you've yes. got all the information with you. And and when I was... And jokes too. And jokes, lots jokes. of jokes. I love a good joke. But I think one thing that I find really interesting with this film is where you look at the screen. Because usually for a very conventional film, there's only usually one kind of focal point on the screen of where your eyes go. But with this, you're constantly scanning like message threads and sort of computer screens. And that's what I found really interesting in terms of how it really trains you to scan the screen for different forms of clues. Mm. Apparently there's lots of Easter eggs in there it. There are. I went so. straight to IMDb <laughs> Trivia. There's and there yeah. are heaps. Yeah. Yes. Which I love. Yeah, so you can definitely, like, dig into the film afterwards and maybe that, you know, gives mm. it some some life afterwards. But after Flick, the you didn't like look, it. I, yeah, look, I hated it. Um, oh, I hated <laughs> it. Yeah, oh. I'm maybe I'm being a bit harsh. I um, It was a nice sunny day when you went in there, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe that's it. Mm. I was just thinking about the sunshine. <laughs> I, um, I think it has potential. I think I really love this sort of engagement with um, online world and the way in which, like, they do kind of, you know, the film does preface bullying, it does preface this idea of surveillance and the issues of um, personal security. So it has all those elements to it and it was enjoyable to watch. Like, I didn't, it wasn't, like, counting down the time. Um, I just felt nothing for the situation. So as much as you kind of like, oh, I wonder what happens, I didn't care. Like, I kind of... <laughs> Everyone's looking, looking a bit shocked at me right now. I feel like John Cho, so his daughter's missing. He doesn't cry once and it's just like, seriously? Because he's dead inside. He's so dead inside yeah. and I just thought, I, I think if you, I would almost prefer them to have dialed back a lot of the other stuff and just to have felt something, like even if they had just one sequence where you see some sort of emotion from him, I just thought that that was what was missing. If We have to care that this young girl is gone missing, has you know, presumed dead and there wasn't enough of that. And so there was nothing to anchor it. And as much as you can kind of follow on like, oh, I wonder who did it. I just was like, without the heart of it, you, I mean, personally, I didn't feel... He had an anger outburst, though. He did, but it was kind of... Um, and that was interesting that that added into the whole twists and turns. But, um, you know, at the core of it, the film should have been about this disconnection. Like, I think the, the, the director is making this kind of 
maybe clunky point about like this could be a space for connection, but it can also be a space of disconnection. And yeah. and there's that terrible line. She just line saw by, Harold and Kumar. Yeah. That's all you saw, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, there's that line. There's it's that, what John Cho was in, uh, just yeah. so yeah, everyone knows. Yeah. <laughs> there's that line um, where Deborah Messing, who's playing the detective, he says something like, um, if you're, you know, if you're disconnected from your child, it's never your fault. It's like, actually, it well, is it, your fault. It, you're the parent. And I was just like... Has Fred Rogers taught just, you nothing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't feeling it. I thought that there's a lot of potential for the film and I'm really excited to see what other films from this maybe spring forward and, and, and also to see what this director does next because it's their directorial yep. debut. Yeah. Again, there's so many debuts. So I'm kind of excited to see where it would go, but I honestly thought it was terrible. <laughs> But well, one, thing, one thing I love about the film is that when you get... Searching. We're searching. S- we're, talk- we're talking about searching, searching people. Uh, when new media is featured, it could so easily be naff, but new media is used really, really well and the director clearly has yeah. a full, I guess, sort of a good knowledge of contemporary... Yeah, that's true. How mm. young, actually, how, yeah. and the I image think- the image was actually... Like, my friend, when I mentioned what the premise was, um, she was just like, oh, so is it just really badly shot? And I was like, actually, the, the image is really sharp and clear and that yeah. part of it is done very well. Mm. So that's wonderful. I think that probably most of the effort went into that it seemed like in some ways and I don't think that Deborah Messing or John Cho are bad actors but they seemed like they were acting against this and maybe because it was in this media sense. Also does anyone use FaceTime that much who checks their laptop before they check their phone like that just shocked me. I know there were (laughs) elements of that but there is one very creepy image which is the um the kind of Mac laser light screensaver image and the way that is used with the telephone call coming through it. I think that was very good. Yeah that was actually yeah I agree actually that was a very good moment. So searching is in release now. Tonight we have also covered the Cinema Nova exclusive Won't You Be My Neighbour and Beast, which is also in wide release. You've been listening to Emma Westwood and Flick Ford. Thank you for being my neighbour. There is only (laughs) one person in the world just like you two. Uh, I've been Stuart Richards. Thank you to Faith Everard who edits the podcast version of this show and to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.